Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the top 10 April-born actors in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? I really enjoyed doing this in March, uh, so I'm gonna keep up with it. I I got a chance to, you know, I finished the, the March scavenger hunt fairly early, so I took some time at the end of March to try and flesh out some of these actors here at the top of this list that I'm gonna go through and uh, fill in some of the holes. Uh, you know, there were some Oscar-nominated performances that I hadn't seen and still haven't seen. You know, there were a lot more films to watch than I expected there to be. Uh, but hopefully by next April, so far away, I'll be able to sort of round that out. And uh, I'll be doing the same thing for every month, really, and just kind of trying to focus on the actors at the tops of these lists as I get closer to recording this episode for that month. So, yeah, uh, unlike uh, March, I don't have to fudge anybody out of the top 10 based on the small small quantity of films that I've seen them in. Everybody in the top 10 right now has been in at least seven films, seven being the smallest, and the most is 38 uh, in, for one person. All of the top 10 people born in April are also in the top 100 overall, uh, which is pretty substantial. Um, April's a pretty good month. May and December are the best months, I think, so far as like having how many people they have at the top end. Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess we'll get there when we get there. But first, we have uh, April. And... Uh, Let's jump into this top 10 right now. All right, number 10 with eight films to her name for me so far is Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse spelled S-A-O-I-R-S-E. Um, I, I used to pronounce it uh, Saoirse or Saoirse but I have heard it pronounced Searsha, and I believe that is the correct pronunciation, and so I will be uh, moving forward uh, that way. Uh, Searsha is, was born April 12th, 1994, so she's three years younger than me, uh, which is uh, kind of demoralizing in a way, for, especially so many of these young people on top, you know, plus on top of that, like her, you know, she's number 10 out of all the people born in April. So she has a pretty solid resume to back that up. And, uh, yeah. So like I said, I've seen eight films, uh, with her in them. Uh, and the, the lowest rated one is a 66 that so there's no average films in this list for me there's no bad films in this list for me uh, only one of them 
isn't actually like a, a, a true performance. One of them is her being herself in a movie. And two of them are Oscar-nominated performances. Uh, so those are all the performances she's had that are Oscar-nominated. And uh, I, I'm really impressed. I really like Saoirse Ronan. I think that she has a great on-screen presence. Uh, you know, she has kind of a smaller stature, smaller frame, in my opinion. But I've never felt uh, like that's held her back in any way whatsoever. She seems like a... She generally kind of plays more of a quiet role, more of a soft-spoken type of role. Uh, when you look at her characters in The Grand Budapest Hotel or Atonement uh, um, or, or Hannah, you know, most of these are characters that don't have a lot of dialogue. They don't say a lot. You know, Brooklyn is probably her most uh, vocal role that she's been in. And I don't, you know, generally, you know, I would look at someone, an actor like that and say, well, you know, at this point in their career, there's probably a reason that directors keep doing that, that they're putting her in roles where she isn't having, doesn't have a lot of dialogue. But Brooklyn came out uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, give or take, and it's fantastic. Like, it's a great movie, and she's great in it, and she has plenty of dialogue. You know, she is the main character and carries that film on her own shoulders because... I think her performance is the biggest reason why that film ends up being uh, better than just standard fare. You know, it is just kind of a love triangle story, but um, between the elements of the production of that film and the set design and, and just uh, the, the realization of the world at that time, on top of uh, Saoirse Ronan's performance and Donald Gleason and whoever the second guy is whose name escapes me at the moment they elevate this film to being so much more than it really should have been uh, and you know so Brooklyn is, is I think kind of the kind of the role that she needed at that point for me at least uh, I don't know about anybody else but for me I think that her role in Brooklyn really um, set her up for greatness down the line. Now, I mentioned she doesn't have any films rated less than 66, and uh, so her average film rating is an 81, which is the second highest out of the top 10. And uh, she does happen to be the youngest person in the top 10. She was nominated for two Oscars, once for Atonement and once for Brooklyn. And she, her, so for me, her, her filmography uh, sort of breaks down like this. Uh, and they're each broken up into pairs, uh, conveniently enough. So at the top, there's The Grand Budapest Hotel and Atonement, which I have both rated in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I think, I think she gets a little overshadowed in The Grand Budapest Hotel, she makes a lot of the scenes she's in, but she's far and away not the center of attention. And I think she's outacted by Ray Fiennes, which is, you know, no shame for anybody really to be outacted by Ray Fiennes. But she, she's capable enough 
to uh, support the film because she is kind of a significant character in that that movie. You know, she is the uh, the bellboy's you know love interest essentially, and she manages to not just be sort of a cardboard cutout character in that sense. She's far more than that. She's actually an intriguing and compelling character in her own right, despite the fact that she is more of a side character in that movie. And then Atonement, which I haven't seen in quite some time, uh, but I do... You know, I I love that movie. I think it's great... um, you know, from that brilliant tracking shot to just all the performances in that movie uh, really, really uh, uh, stuck with me. You know, between Saoirse Ronan and, uh, you know, you've got James McAvoy uh, in, in this. This was kind of the first film that uh, I'd seen James McAvoy in, uh, in any real sub- with any real substance to it. Uh, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch was in that, you know, right when I was really in the Sherlock phase of my life, I guess you could say. Uh, Juno Temple was quite good. Um, uh, Peter Peter White, who is kind of more of a supporting man for a lot of people. Vanessa Redgrave uh, has a great role in that. Uh, you know, there's just Kira Knightley, uh, is pro- I, I don't, I think Keira Knightley is, is better in other things than Atonement. I think she's fine, but I, I don't think she's outstanding. Uh, you've got, you know, Christopher Walken in kind of a small role. Uh, but so, you know, like that was a movie that just had a lot of moving parts going on. And... Saoirse Ronan is the one that was recognized and and nominated, and I think that that says a lot about the strength of her acting. Uh, The next pair is uh, a pair of films that are rated in the 80s, and that's Brooklyn and The Way Back. Uh, uh, So I I already spoke a lot, uh, or a good deal rather, about Brooklyn. And so I'll kind of keep this to just uh, the way back if I can. And uh, this is another one that it's, it's kind of been quite some time since I've seen. But uh, my, my summary for it is a group of escaped prisoners from a Soviet labor camp flee Siberia on foot. Man, I really don't remember anything about that. I watched it five years ago. Um... I don't think I can say much about it. I can't even picture a scene from it. Because everything I try to think of is just actually from the way, way back, which is a different movie. But I liked it. I thought it was great. So moving on. The 70s films. Uh, Those are How I Live Now and Hannah. Hannah was kind of startling. I I was... I, I... heard about the film and was initially very excited for it and especially learning that Saoirse Ronan would be the lead character would play the titular Hannah I thought that was a perfect casting decision Um, that type of character is like Saoirse Ronan has that like all down pat 
you know, it, it's it's wonderful. And you know, and I when I saw the movie, I wasn't as overwhelmed as I really wanted to be by it. Um, but I still liked it quite a bit. You know, it's in the 70s. It's not great, uh, but it's very good. And it definitely showcases uh, sort of the best of this wheelhouse that uh, Saoirse Ronan had been painted into at that time. And I think that it's a very good representation of uh, her sort of body of work in that sense. Um, and How I Live Now... Uh, is was a movie that I didn't that kind of came out of nowhere for me. It had okay reviews when I first watched it uh, three years ago, and uh, so my summary is: after joining family in the UK, an American teenager finds herself in the middle of an escalating European war. And for a film that kind of deals with war it, it really take the war really takes a backseat and the film is just about like these younger kids like trying to survive in these hostile conditions and you know Saoirse Ronan gets to play a very strong and uh, commanding character that leads this movie and that was that was what really sold it for me you know she owns that performance, owns that movie, and really made it her own in a way that I was not expecting. You know, I, at the time, you know, I had mostly seen her as more of a supporting role to the films that she was in and sort of helping them be the films that they were. And in this film, and How I Live Now, I really felt like she made this movie what it was you know she didn't let it she wasn't trying to support the image of the movie she was creating the movie in the image she wanted it to be in and i, I really and i really appreciated that and then the last two movies both rated in the 60s are her performance uh her her role as just herself which is in muppets most wanted and uh, her lowest rated film is is byzantium now, Muppets Most Wanted was pretty was a pretty big letdown after the Muppets movie that came out a few years before it. I I never really had super high hopes for Muppets Most Wanted, uh, but it was cute. It was cute enough, I guess. You know, it got a like high sixties rating from me, and that's not stellar, but it, it's serviceable and and it's fine it's good and then byzantium on the other hand is kind of uh, more of a misnomer that's not the right term i'm looking for uh is more curious i think uh i think a lot of that (laughs) that 66 rating comes from the curiousness of this movie so this is a movie about vampires and it's not you know it's completely different from the majority of vampire movies that have come out before or since i think that the closest vampire film we've seen is only lovers left alive in relation to byzantium they they kind of exist in the same uh zeitgeist in a way 
whereas Only Lovers Left Alive, I think, is a much better movie simply because the acting prowess is, on the whole, far stronger in that film, as well as the direction and writing and, and sort of uh, scenery that, that we're seeing and, and the world it's creating. But Byzantium isn't bad. It, it's it's competent in all of those areas, and I think that Saoirse Ronan, uh, she is one of the two vampires in the movie, or one of the two main vampires in the movie, and she... You know, again, that's kind of a role where she doesn't have to talk too much. And, you know, she can pull off this idea that, yeah, she looks, you know, she was 20, uh, you know, 19 when the movie came out. Uh, Who knows? I mean, probably 18 when it was filming. And yet she completely pulls off being, uh, you know, sort of ageless in a sense. And so... I, I'm very impressed by Saoirse Ronan. The fact that she's ranked 10th for and, and 96th overall, she's only 21 or 22 at the moment. She'll turn 23 in a couple of days. Is great. Uh, you know, there are definitely films of hers I haven't seen, but I think that she has a great career ahead of her. So with eight films and an 81 average, two Oscar nominations. Um, and, a val- and a total actor value of 20, which is tied for the lowest out of the 10 people on this list. Uh, Saoirse Ronan has a score of 103 even. Uh, and so we move up to number nine, which uh, is the deceased, uh, unfortunately, Alec Guinness. Uh, Alec Guinness, born April 2nd, 1914, passed away August 5th, 2000. He was 86 uh, when he left us. And I've seen 10 films uh, from Alec Guinness. And he does not have near the distribution of film ratings that Saoirse Ronan had. Uh, His average film rating is a little lower than hers at 78.2 and the third highest of these 10 people. But the reason he is so high up is because six of his 10 films are rated in the 90s. That is a huge, uh, huge number. And yes, uh, three of those six films are the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, But uh, sitting alongside those, and and in, in effect... At the top of his list, his best movie is Lawrence of Arabia. Now, this is uh, heads and shoulders a Peter O'Toole film, first and foremost. But Alec Guinness plays a very solid and well, well-crafted supporting role to Peter O'Toole's narrative in that film. This is an epic of, of biblical proportions. Uh, one of the first sort of older and, and epic films that I ever saw, uh, you know, and it's been a very, very long time since I've seen this. You know, most of these, you know, I consider three or four years ago to be quite some time for having last seen a movie when you consider how many films I've seen in between those points in time. I saw Lawrence of Arabia 13 years ago. Uh, so there are probably anywhere between three and four thousand films that I've seen 
since that point and and now and so the the fact that i remember anything about this movie is uh, a testament to its greatness at all but uh you know most of my memories of lawrence of arabia are peter o'toole so i don't have a lot of alec guinness to express as far as that goes but the second his second highest film i do have plenty of alec guinness to talk about and that's the bridge on the river kwai uh bridge on the river kwai uh alec guinness was both nominated and won uh an oscar for best actor for this role in this film and bridge on the river kwai i think the first time i i really heard it in this in a space where I was um, able to understand what was being referenced and talked about was, I think it's brought up in an episode of Parks and Rec. I think Ron watches it. It's his favorite movie. And I watched it. River. Oh, damn it. Kawhi. I watched it uh, three years ago in, in March of 2014. Uh, it is the best picture winner from 1957 and my second highest rated f- film from 1957. And it's, it's a very straightforward kind of movie. And that's what, that's what makes it so very complex is the story is uh, about prisoners of war, uh, 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 led by Alec Guinness. He's kind of the commander, captain of his troop who's been imprisoned. And he co- is constantly in negotiations with uh, their captors. So, you know, at this point in time, uh, having prisoners of war, you know, you tr- treated them with respect because you wanted uh, your own prisoners of war to be treated with respect. And so there was this mutual thing, respect thing going on. But the the simplicity of it is that Alec Guinness just kind of agrees to help their captors with whatever he can in exchange for, you know, fair treatment and respect. And yet the complexity arises when his team, his crew, his, 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 um, his battalion, whatever you want to call them, rebel against him. You know, he is seen as having turned sides. He is seen as being far more forgiving than he should be, far more accepting, far more willing to uh, service the the enemy than than anyone should be. And and that that sort of dichotomy, that that clash of uh, of ideals, is perfect for a, for an actor like Alec Guinness to really. Uh, fight out it within himself. Um, you know, he he's able to uh, sort of elevate both sides of that conflict in his own character consistently. You know, you can tell when in this movie, you know, there's an element of like, how delusional is he? You know, is he, you know, he's not eating as well. Uh, he's not, uh, you know, he he's doing a lot of physical labor. He he's He's constantly... Uh, in stress for the safety of his team you know how much in his right mind is he and yet 
you know, he realizes that like, well, if I'm not, if I don't acquiesce to what they want, who knows what could happen to, to everyone else that's here. And if I do agree, you know, like who knows what they'll think of me. And at what point can I just, he's saying, you know, at what point can I just ignore their opinions and their thoughts that they have on me and my position and my relationship uh, with the enemy and that that is far and away my favorite Alec Guinness role uh, Bridge on the River Kwai he is superb in it and for me it is far more representative of him as an actor and iconic than the next few films that he's in and those are the Star Wars movies so he's in episodes four five and six all rated in the 90s for me. They're all fantastic. Um, I have them ranked in that order, four, five, then six. But the differences are very, very minimal. He was nominated for his performance in A New Hope. Uh, did not win, uh, but was nominated, which is kind of crazy to think about, you know, in this day and age where if you're in a genre film, you don't get nominated for for an acting performance. You know, I can't. the 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 last one that really happened, the last one that I can really remember is uh, Ian McKellen as Gandalf in in the Lord of the Rings. I think the Fellowship. Uh, you know, it, it just does not happen. You know, maybe at the Golden Globes, like with Ryan Reynolds for Deadpool, but not at the Oscars. Like that, those aren't types of things that happen and so you know this happening in in the 70s was pretty still also a pretty big deal uh and uh you know he may not really be a huge presence or or may not be a huge character in in all three of these films but his presence looms over them and you know the at the time uh, you know, the only other character in these movies that has as big a presence as uh, Alec Guinness does as Obi-Wan Kenobi is James Earl Jones as Darth Vader. You know, you've got these two huge names and uh, huge voices. You know, James Earl Jones's voice is highly iconic, one of the most recognizable voices that, that exists. And it's a booming, deep, uh, gravelly voice. And Alec Guinness's voice is not very powerful. Uh, it's very light. It's very airy. Uh, and it counterbalances James Earl Jones so perfectly. And when you hear his words that he passes on to Luke, when, when he appears as, as a vision or, or just as a, an aura or, or whatever it may be, to aid uh, his Padawan, there's just this sort of sanctity and hope that his visage represents. And, and I think that in and of itself is just just remarkable for, for someone to be able to portray so much in, in such a very small amount of time, especially when you spread it out over three films. Like, Darth Vader, James Earl Jones has a ton, a ton, a ton more scenes than 
Obi-Wan Kenobi, best, as best my recollection can remember. And yet, by the end of the day, I think both of those characters are equally represented and equally as important to this series. Uh, so, yeah, the Star Wars movies. Alec Guinness, so great. The other 90-rated film of his is Kind Hearts and Coronets, a film that I watched last month for The Scavenger Hunt. I've talked about that uh, already. Um, he plays, you know, like a Eddie Murphy, uh, the Tyler Perry kind of role where he has like seven different characters that are all him, except it's not stupid and cheesy. It's like, you know, actually high quality. And it's just a, it's a fun movie. And, you know, I, I guess I don't have to go too much into it. Other movies that he's been in, uh, no movies right in the 80s. One movie right in the 70s, and that's Dr. Zhivago, which is another film that I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, a man struggles to survive Russia during the Russian Revolution. That doesn't really tell me anything or remind me of anything about it. Um, as best as I can recall, Alec Guinness played the main character in Dr. Zhivago, and uh, it's a good movie. Not great, but good. Uh, he has one film in the 60s, and that's The Lavender Hill Mob. He plays one of the uh, members of said mob and ultimately is, I believe, uh, I want to say he's the only one that like gets away or something like that. They're like part of this team that um, they they basically like, they're criminals, essentially, and, and he's one of them. He's like kind of the, the main character and, and the leader, I think. Uh, his ninth best movie uh, is is a film in the rated in the 50s, and that's The Prisoner, which I was actually just looking at not too long ago. I forget what the reason was. Um, oh, that's right. He plays a cardinal. Uh, who is imprisoned and interrogated into giving up uh, a confession that he is holding within him. While I think the film, uh, on the whole, is fine, I did very much enjoy Guinness's performance. You know, I think he brings a lot to that role. He can play this... He plays the sort of uh, patronly... Um, sort of father, religious leader character very well. You know, and I am extending that description to Obi-Wan Kenobi, for sure. And unfortunately, his 10th film is kind of a disappointing inclusion, uh, unfortunately, but it has to be here as per the rules of my spreadsheet. And that is Star Wars The Clone Wars, where he voices Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, yeah. I don't... I mean, the, the movie's awful. He... The animation's awful. It's not... It's like barely even a movie anyway, but it is a movie, and it was in theaters. I went and saw it, and so that's why it's on here. And that is the biggest uh, baggage dragging Guinness down to ninth. Um, he is ninth as far as April-born actors go, which makes... He is 66th overall. His 10 films and average film rating of 78.2 combined with his two Oscar nominations and one win uh, and his value of 25, which is eighth best 
put his score at 106.2. So that's 3.2 points higher than Searsha Ronan. Uh, and uh, that's just Alec. That's Alec Guinness, number eight. Number seven. Uh, this is a, an actor who I watched, uh, I want to say, one film from in preparation to, to do this list. I'm looking at it. Here we go. Yeah, I watched one film of his. I don't think I see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so I didn't, I just didn't mark it, and that's all. Um, so I've seen eight films. For this actor where he was nominated for an Oscar. I've seen one film that he's won for, and that is Al Pacino. Al Pacino was born April 25th, 1940. He's still kicking, uh, although his films have gotten progressively worse in later years, and he is ranked 62nd overall. He has the lowest average film rating of everyone on this list at a 63.74. And has the most awful, or, or is tied for the most awful films, uh, so films rated between 0 and 24, with a 3. However, it is his wealth of Oscar nominations that keeps him this high, keeps him in 8th place. Uh, so, he has 4 films rated in the 90s. Well, let's see. Uh, some of them, I assume, you know, he has the Os- he's Oscar nominated for his performance in The Godfather. Oscar nominated for his performance in Glen Gary Glen Ross. And he was also in the iconic film Scarface and the far less recognized and remembered film Insomnia, uh, the, the one directed by Christopher Nolan. And so, I mean, The Godfather is obviously a classic that almost everyone can agree upon is 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 a phenomenal film. Glenn Glare, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is l- more of an ensemble. Uh, you know, I believe he was nominated for supporting in the, in this role, and it, this is just a film where everyone involved is kind of working at a nine out of ten. You know, they're all highly, you know, highly skilled actors. Um, you even have, you know, I would consider Alec Baldwin to be the weakest name in that cast, and he comes in and completely steals the, the show for his big scene uh, of always, uh, you know, of talking about closing and being, you know, that kind of stuff. Insomnia is it was kind of a, a hidden gem uh, in, in as far as like. No one really talks about it. I've heard about it once, I think, in the last few years uh, that people bring it up. It's not a very familiar film for a lot of people, even though it is one of Christopher Nolan's films. Uh, but what drew me to it, you know, wasn't the Al Pacino factor. It was the Robin Williams as the villain angle, because I thought, no, that doesn't work. Uh, you know, I remember at the time when I watched it, you know, I didn't think Robin Williams could be a villain. And that's what made it so good. But 
and as great, I think Robin Williams definitely outshines Pacino in that movie. But Pacino is kind—he of, was kind of at what I would consider the sort of end of his um, arc, as as it were. He, you know, he's been in some pretty shitty movies in the more couple few recent years. Um, just looking at things like Jack and Jill, um, or Misconduct, uh, or, or Danny Collins was fine, I guess, but, but, you know, he, he's definitely hasn't been in, like, a Godfather or Scarface in a long time, and Insomnia kind of feels like, for me, the last sort of film that really hit a high part high mark in his career uh, I don't know if he'll ever really reclaim that sort of fire that he used to have moving on to the 80s he has six films right in the 80s um, the highest one of those his fifth highest movie overall is Dog Day Afternoon which I watched a couple of months ago and fell in love with I think he is stunning in that movie uh probably my favorite performance of his of all time and it was really just you know presented Pacino in a way that I would I had never seen before you know he is a very I I don't know he had that sort of same aggression uh, 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 hidden aggression that I think a lot of Pacino's characters have but there was just such a softness to him that I was just completely unfamiliar with in that role and so I, I really, he really makes Dog Day Afternoon one of one of the best films I've seen this year so far. Uh, also on this list, The Insider, uh, another very, you know, he he did a lot of crime films uh, and Justice for All, which he was also nominated for his performance in. Uh, the Godfather Part Two, again Oscar nominated, uh, and then a documentary that he is, I believe, he, he's himself in the documentary, but he's the sort of main focus in the documentary. So he's sort of putting together a Shakespearean play. I believe it's Richard Third, I think. And uh, this is just kind of Pacino sort of going through the character, going through all these other actors that are working with him and sort of trying to achieve and learn what this play really is and what it means and, and um, what the intention uh, of Shakespeare, what Shakespeare's intention truly was when he wrote it. And rounding out the 80s, uh, the 80-rated films, is Carlito's Way, which is another one I've seen fairly recently that uh, had a kind of a twist on the Pacino that I'd become a accustomed to as well you know he again is playing more of a soft-hearted nicer character than you know his characters in the godfather his characters in scarface uh and, and so forth and so forth moving on to the 70s just two films here and that's donnie brasco and casting by casting by is a documentary he plays himself i think he only he's only in it for maybe a scene or two uh, but for, for Donnie Brasco, 
um, again, like this is a sort of a movie that you would expect to see someone like Pacino in, you know, a movie about infiltrating the mafia and the FBI and uh, just kind of feels like he was very pigeonholed into those types of movies, uh, you know, between that, The Insider, The Godfather, Justice for All, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he's been in four films that are rated in the 60s. Uh, the aforementioned Danny Collins, which, again, I think is fine, but, uh, you know, not terribly noteworthy. His Oscar-nominated performance in Serpico, which I think is a very scattered film, and I wasn't a huge fan of it. You know, he's good, but I, I wasn't super excited by it. Uh, he has a he has a role in Ocean's Thirteen, which I don't really remember. And and lastly, The Recruit, um, which sort of a later film for him in his career. And uh, I don't know, it's just kind of like an older version of some, a lot of the characters he's played prior to that. Uh, he's been in two films, rated in the 50s, so that don't affect his value at all. One is The Godfather Part 3, which I think is very, very average. Um, and, you know, I don't even think he has that much uh, going on in it either. And the other is an Oscar-nominated performance for Dick Tracy, which is a film that I didn't particularly like, and I'm not sure why anybody liked it. Uh, I guess he's okay. You know, it was more of a... Was it Warren Beatty, I think, that film was? But, uh, you know, for me, that just wasn't my speed whatsoever. And then we finally get to his his Oscar-winning performance, uh, which is his highest-rated bad movie, and that's Scent of a Woman. Um... I mean, this is clearly a career win for, for Pacino, which is a shame. You know, he definitely deserved it for two or three of those performances I've already gone through. And uh, it's great that he has it. You know, it, the fact that it's for Scent of a Woman doesn't really a- affect anything on my spreadsheet insofar as he still gets the points for having won an Oscar. But, uh, you know... Lifetime, you know, career awards at the Oscars, I think, are very stupid and and unnecessary and and silly. Uh, His other just bad movie is The Humbling, which is, I I think, a more recent film. But, again, not one that anyone really remembers or or cares about. Uh, He plays himself in Jack and Jill, and he is the best thing about Jack and Jill, which is not a compliment yeah, I don't know why he chose to go into that movie. He also has a role in Geely, which is uh, absolutely garbage. Um, so bad. And his worst movie is Misconduct, uh, which I gave a, a one. A one out of a hundred. So, yeah, his last, his bottom three films, Jack and Jill, Geely, and Misconduct, are rated three, two, and one, respectively. And they plummet his average film rating to a 63.74. They drop his value to a 34, which is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6th highest uh, out of everybody in the top 10 for April. And that leaves him with an average with a total score of 106.74. So only about half a point higher than Alec Guinness. And uh, yeah, I mean, Al Pacino 
has some fantastic roles, some fantastic films in his career. And I'm sure there are still more I haven't seen yet. But I'm betting that there are just as many awful films uh, within like the last few years or still to come that I haven't seen of his. And, you know, he's in that sort of Robert De Niro phase where, uh, which is funny. I mean, they're both very similar They've had very similar pa- uh, career path trajectories, and I, I would, I just wish like if you're not going to be in good movies, there's no way they need this money. I, I can't imagine, and it, I mean, I would just feel better if they just stop making movies if they're not going to be in good ones. That's all. But I mean, if they like making movies, then they're fine. I mean, you know, that's what's going to happen. So, yeah. So 23 films for Al Pacino. Also with 23 films. Uh, just above him at 55th overall and 6th, uh, or 7th, rather, uh, for April-born actors is the uh, the beautiful and timeless Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson has uh, is been in 68, or has an average film rating of 68.61. Uh, her and Al Pacino, both being in... Th- 23 films are part of the 132 actors on my spreadsheet that have been in at least 23 films. And um, while Thompson has been, I've seen six less nominated performances from Emma Thompson. I have seen her, her distribution of film ratings uh, is far superior to Pacino's. So, while Pacino has seven films that are rated less than a 60, Thompson only has five, and her films, and she has one less awful film. She has a bad film instead of an awful film. So she has three bad films, two awful films, whereas Pacino has two bad films, three awful films. So uh, she ends up with a value that's only two, that's two points higher than Pacino's. She ends up with six less points from Oscar awards but gains of almost five points from her average film rating so she ends up with a 107.61 or nine tenths of a point higher than Pacino um her best film in my opinion is Sense and Sensibility one of her two Oscar nominated performances that I've seen and uh one of my favorite films of hers um and uh, she she has a very long history of being in uh, period pieces. That's you know she's British, I think. Some she's European, for sure. British, I think. Uh, and so you know, sense and sensibility, and education, much to do about nothing. Uh, Saving Mr. Banks, Howard's End, a lot of films that take place in Europe or are period pieces or uh, something along those lines she's been in three films that have rated in the 90s so sense and sensibility and education and much ado about nothing are her highest rated films much ado about nothing is i think the most iconic film when i think about emma thompson uh for me you know it's one that i saw when i was much younger and and re-watched uh a little more recently and it just it just it just has such a I think she's Emma Thompson can be a great dramatic actor, but I think that her wheelhouse is really in 
comedy and romance, and I think Much Ado About Nothing is perfect. She she is perfect for that film and perfectly cast in that role that she has. Uh, she's the the female lead, the one that trades banter with Kenneth Branagh, and that is the role that I will always remember her as. Uh, that's the one that I see when I close my eyes and I'm thinking about Emma Thompson. Uh, she's also been in some of the Harry Potter films, uh, particularly uh, specifically three of them. She's been in Prisoner of Azkaban, the best Harry Potter film, as well as Order of the Phoenix and Deathly Hallows Part 2. She plays uh, Professor um, Trelawney, the divination professor who sees the future and in Order of the Phoenix is kicked out of the uh, castle by Umbridge, uh, and then Dumbledore brings her back in. She, you know, she doesn't have a big role in the Harry Potter f- f- films, but she's a very interesting character. And, uh, you know, someone else might not have given Trelawney the personality and representation that she deserves, and Emma Thompson uh, it gives it in spades. And so I, I very much appreciate that. Um, her Oscar-nominated and award-winning performance that I've seen is from Howard's End, uh, which is one that I watched not too long ago, and she is fantastic. Uh, she she embodies all of the positive attributes I gave her for Much Do About Nothing, uh, except in Howard's End, she has, instead of uh, Kenneth Branagh to bounce everything off of, it's more of a... Helena Bonham Carter uh, thing that she plays off of. And the two of them together are just uh, amazing. You know, two of my favorite actors uh, still working. And it's a shame I didn't watch this movie before. I think the biggest reason I hadn't is because the poster that I see for it is god-awful. It is absolutely terrible. It's a shitty poster. Um, but don't if that has ever t- if that turns you off I I think that's a very unlikely occurrence but if that had did then uh, ignore it because it's actually a really good movie um, she's also in Saving Mr. Banks where she plays uh, a curmudgeon which was really fun I think uh, she has a lot of fun with that role and it's nice to see her in a very different sort of um, character than I've really become used to sort of not really the fast talking high energetic high energy um matchmaker type just rom-com character she's really just uh spiteful and that's great that I'm so happy that she was got that role and that she could really pull it off and and do so much with it uh, her seventh rate best movie and the last film of hers rated in this 80s of the five of them or, or the fourth highest film for her rated in the 80s but the last one to mention is Brave where she has a voice uh, voice role and I, I want to say she's the mom but I don't remember if she's the mom or the witch pretty sure she's the mom yeah she's the mom and she is fine i i don't know i I mean she's fine in this movie i i don't think brave 
I think if I rewatch Brave, it would get a lower rating than it has. So to that end, it's it's fine. I think that Emma Thompson has a great voice, but I don't think it's used to all of its uh, to its to the best uh, of its abilities in Brave. Uh, or in another film to come uh, that that she's a voice actor in. Uh, In the 70s, highest rated film is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which I've already kind of talked about. She's in Stranger Than Fiction, which I thought was a really interesting role for her as the the writer that is trying to kill off uh, Will Ferrell's character. And... She she has a sort of uh, demure, um, sort of sort of pathos to her character that uh, is is really not in many other roles that she's had. Um, after that, Men in Black Three, I really don't remember her in that. I'll skip it. Uh, she's in Love Actually. Um. That's cool. I mean, it's such a big film. I, I don't think she really stands out so much. You know, I, when I think of standout moments in Love Actually, I'm thinking of like Bill Nye or or what's his name from the new The Walking Dead with with the cards outside the door. You know, I, I you know Emma Thompson's character isn't the one that really stood stood out to me. And I don't think that's necessarily because she was bad in it. I just think that her story wasn't as compelling. Then uh, her other primarily voice role, but there is she is actually physically in the film at some point, uh, Beauty and the Beast, which just came out. And again, like she's a fine singer and a fair voice actress, but she's no um... oh, I can't think of the name. Angela Lansbury. She's no Angela Lansbury. Which, I mean, who is? And her rendition of uh, Beauty and the Beast is serviceable. But, again, like, it shouldn't have been sung by her, I don't think. So, she she helps the film, but I, I don't think she's... I, I think, unfortunately, she was miscast in that, in that role. Um... Uh, her for- her last film right in the 70s, her 14th best film overall, Nanny McPhee Returns. And this is one that, you know, she was also in Nanny McPhee. I think Returns is a little bit better. And this is basically her playing a older, meaner version of Mary Poppins. And uh, which doesn't seem to fit with who you expect Emma Thompson to be. Uh, she seems like she'd be a great Mary Poppins. But to have, so to have cast her as Nanny McPhee return in Nanny McPhee is really interesting, and I, I think she she does it, she pulls it off. Uh, I'm gonna kind of speed through some of this stuff now. Um, there's a lot of films to talk about. I can't spend hours on each one. Um, in the '60s, she has Nanny McPhee, like I mentioned, Impromptu, another sort of period piece, and Treasure Planet, another voice role where she really wasn't remarkable. And Bridget Jones' Baby, where she absolutely steals that film. She is the best part about it. 
I believe she also has a writing credit for it. So she's she's pretty great in that. I was very pleased. Her bad films. She is the narrator for Men, Women, and Children. So I can't begrudge her too much for that. Uh, she was in Beautiful Creatures and Burnt. Unfortunately, Burnt was... I believe that's the Bradley Cooper as a chef film, which was just a complete misfire. That's not the Bradley Cooper that we want. And then her her two awful films. Uh, one of them is The Love Punch. Uh, and this one isn't really as much of... Much to much note as the other one is. The Love Punch came out a few years ago, and uh, it's essentially the plot is a divorced couple reunites to steal a diamond as revenge for having money taken from them. It's very silly, uh, and Emma Thompson is fine. You know, she's kind of the reason to watch that if you're going to watch it. The other awful film, though, is Junior, which stars uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Emma Thompson. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is pregnant in this movie. And Emma Thompson uh, actually is there to be an actual actor. And yet she has to act opposite of a pregnant Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I don't know how she does it, but she did it. And she's great. And I love Emma Thompson. I think she's one of the best actors uh alive she is definitely one of the best female actors in my opinion and i hope she continues to do keep working i really do number six uh is the second of two actors on this top 10 that are are no longer with us uh, born in april 17th 1918 and passing in November 12th of 1981, at the age of 63, is William Holden. And we've entered the top 50. He's ranked 49th right now. William Holden, he's only been in seven films that I've seen. I watched one of them in preparation for this list. He has the highest average film rating of, of this top 10 at 85.43. Uh, of his seven films I've seen, Three of those films, he was nominated uh, for an Oscar, winning one of them. He is tied with Sir Ronan with a 20 value for his films. And his total score ends up at 109.43, so about two points higher than Emma Thompson. And he, uh, like Sir Ronan, has no films rated uh, lower than 60, and his lowest rated film is a 69. So... His distribution of films is a little bit better than uh, Saoirse Ronan's also. He's been in three films rated the 90s. Uh, the one that I recently saw is the one he won the Oscar for. That's Stalag 17, which is sort of um, The Great Escape, but different. Um, it's about as well as I can describe it. His character is by far the most complex character in the film, and he is fantastic. Uh, his best film is his is another Oscar-nominated performance for Sunset Boulevard, which is a very very um, difficult film to to watch to understand. I'm sure I've missed plenty about it uh, on my first watch of it that I won't really realize until I go back and see it again. And his other film is one we've already talked about and touched upon, and that's The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, he is one of the um, 
uh, uh, lower level commanders that is in prison with uh, Alec Guinness, his character. Uh, his uh, his third film that he was nominated for that I've seen is Network, uh, where he is a supporting character in that, and he is pretty good. I don't really remember it that much. Uh, that's his only film rated in the 80s. He has two films rated in the 70s, uh, Sabrina, starring Audrey Hepburn, and I think Holden is the main male character opposite her but i'm not certain i believe that is the case and uh the other film in that uh that grouping is the way which is um not uh martin sheen is the main character in that i was really taken by the way uh it's a very it was a very unassuming film when when i watched it i didn't expect anything from it um you know and and martin sheen basically uh goes on this hike uh in place of his son who passes away and can't complete it and william holden i I think is just uh one of the characters that sheen meets along that part of it which hold on a second seems very much impossible because that can't be right because the way came out after he died (laughs) um oh i see what happened so there is mm, so this is uh, hold on a second everybody so there, there is a william holden in the way it is not uh that the william holden that we are talking about as this is the only credit that he has on imdb so hold on a second that is a big big development so the way is pulls out one of his films rated in the 70s so this is going to increase his average film rating but lower his value Uh, so we will see so this is ultimately not going to change his position as far as April-born actors go. It lowers his score to 108.5. So he's only one point ahead of Emma Thompson at this point. Um, but it does drop him from 49th to 53rd. And that is no... That is pretty significant. So that drops him out of the 70s. And Wow, this is a first. Because I've fucking names man names that are the same uh so uh only six films so ta uh so six is the lowest number of films and his average film rating is an 86.5 his value is now 18 which is the lowest of the top 10 and his sixth film the one rated 69 is sob film i watched a little bit ago i don't remember much about it um the description is from 81 and it's called and it's described as a director makes a huge flop and finds himself struggling to find a reason to live i don't remember william holden's capacity in that film Uh, let's move away from that train wreck and into number five the top five and the actual people who are in the top 50 at this point now Uh, as we've eclipsed the hour point 
Yeah, so number five, uh, the rest of these people are all living, uh, knock on wood, and at 47th overall, and fifth out of April-born actors, born April 15th, 1982, so the second youngest person on the list, on the top ten, rather, uh, with the most number of films I've seen out of these top ten people, at 38, is Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, like so many people born in the 80s and 70s that are actors, have been in a ton of films that I've seen because I've seen all the recent films, and they're in all the recent films. Uh, I don't have nearly enough time to spend five minutes on all 38 films he's been in, but I will do what I can to comment on the ones that I think are worth pulling out. Uh, So his average film rating is a 64.21, the second lowest, uh, only ahead of Pacino, which is kind of what you would expect when you have that many films like it's very very difficult to keep your average film rating uh even above 70 um and so seth rogan has been in the most bad films out of anyone on this top 10 but being in so many films he's afforded that liberty he has not been nominated for an acting oscar but he has the second highest value out of everyone at 46 uh, which makes his total score 110.21, so about two and a half points, or about a point and a half ahead of William Holden. His best-rated film, he plays second fiddle to Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Fifty Fifty. Uh, this is a film that, unlike a lot of the films he's very famous for, he is adds a level of drama to his performance that generally you don't see when he's. Uh, in films with James Franco. And that I greatly appreciated. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt is an incredible actor, and I I think he is the one that has that raises Seth Rogen's performance in this movie. Uh, this is probably my second favorite performance from Rogen. Uh, his best uh, will be coming along here in a second. But... I I really, really love this movie, far more for Joseph Gordon-Levitt than for Seth Rogen, but uh, unlike some films, Seth Rogen does not at all uh, take anything away from this movie by being in it. <laughs> That's great. He, he's, he's good. Uh, his second best movie is 22 Jump Street. Um, he has a small role in that. And that's kind of par for the course for uh, Seth Rogen. You know, he is in a, a lot of these movies, he is... Well, I mean, a lot of these movies he's very, he has somewhat of a smaller role in um, as we go through. And it's a re, and it's all of these sort of small roles that are really padding the resume, as it were. Uh, likewise, his third best film, which is Monsters vs. Aliens, an animated film. He voices uh, the blue blob guy, uh, I think whose name is Bob. And, you know, this is a film that I think uh, it's got Reese Witherspoon, Hugh Laurie, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, among others in it as well. And, you know, really all Seth Rogen has to do is not fuck it up, and he doesn't, and that's great. His best role, however, comes in his fourth best highest rated film, which is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is first and foremost a Michael Fassbender film, but Seth Rogen is there in spades he 
he manages to keep up with Fassbender, and that is no small task. I think Fassbender is one of the best working actors today, and he has a very long career ahead of him. He is great in everything I've seen him in, and for someone like Seth Rogen, who is notoriously just in comedies, who is notoriously um, just in stoner comedies, and, and, you know, far more of a fluffy, fun bear type of an actor than anything else, this is a role that really sticks out when you see him in it, and he is superb. And uh, not that I think he needs to embrace this side of himself by any stretch, um, because, you know, he can do whatever he wants, and plenty of his comedies are actually very good. But if he were to pursue this sort of, more of these roles, I would be you know, I would have no complaints about that. So I think I think Steve Jobs is his best role, and and I wish he would uh, sort of embrace that side of himself a little more. You know, not completely, but just a couple times more. Uh, moving into a string of comedies, however, uh, films rated in the '80s. He's been in eight of them, and that is the highest number of '80-rated films for anybody in this top ten. You have. Leading the way, Knocked Up, um, you know, one of the most iconic films of his, one of the ones that really, you know, people point to as where he sort of broke onto the scene. Uh, you've got This Is The End, which I think is hilarious and insanely clever. And, uh, you know, he is essentially playing himself, although it's a fictionalized version of himself. But he, he does... I don't, I don't remember if he has a writing credit for This Is The End or not, but he and Jay Baruchel are, are fantastic in it, and I very much enjoy it. He has a small voice role in Kung Fu Panda, uh, which is led by Jack Black. Um, he plays one of the, um, one of the six, or, or, or one of the six masters at, at the school that Jack Black's Panda is training at. I believe he's the crick, uh, the, the, the walking stick, grasshopper, insect thing, I think. I, I don't fully remember. Next is Neighbors, another comedy. He headlines with Zac Efron. I think the, uh, and Rose Byrne. I don't want to forget Rose Byrne. She's fantastic. I think she's better in it than anybody else, but um, Seth Rogen, you know, all he has to do in most of these comedies is is be his normal character and i'm not sure how similar that is to who he is as a human being it seems very similar so you know i don't give him a lot of points for his acting ability but the fact that who he is just naturally fits in so well with these comedies is it's not nothing uh, you know i mean it's it's not he's no daniel day lewis but it's not nothing it's not nothing uh, adding to that list is Pineapple Express with James Franco. Um, it's more the same, but that's really good the same. Um, and th- I can throw in Superbad, which he has a small role in, and Kung Fu Panda 2, where he reprises his role. Um, but another film that he that sort of veers away from this stoner comedy uh, persona of his is Take This Waltz, uh, which is actually a f- fairly good movie um 
see if I can kind of refresh my memory on it really quickly. Uh, it came out in 2012, and uh, my synopsis is a married woman flirts and finds herself torn between lives. So he kind of plays a cucked husband, in a sense, uh, as his wife sort of finds another guy that she'd prefer to be with, but is torn upon, torn about. And I think this is actually, uh, you know, I think, you know, his sort of ability to play that sad sack um, comedy role, you know, he, he, he manages to deftly remove a lot of the comedy element of that character that he is familiar with. And uh, that's just kind of what you're left with. And, and that's kind of a perfect representation for Take This Waltz. And, you know, he's kind of a schmoozy, loving bear of a guy in this movie. And that's exactly what the role needs. And so I think he's very good in that movie. Moving into the 70s now, um, some more uh, voice roles. Sausage Party, which came out last year, which I thought was quite good. Uh, not great, but quite good. He has a voice role in Horton Hears a Who. I, I don't know how dominant, how, how how much of a leading role he was, though. I don't think he was a main role, but I, I don't recall. He has a voice role in the Spiderwick Chronicles. And Paul. Uh, Spiderwick Chronicles, more of a YA film. Uh, it's a, He has a very minor role in that. Paul... Is he the main alien? I, I don't recall. Paul is the alien movie. Yes, he is the, the alien. Yeah, he voices Paul in Paul, uh, where he is just an alien that runs into Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. And I think that's great. I think that's a, I, I love it. I think he does a great job in that. Uh, he had a small role in Donnie Darko, which I think is very good. He has a small role in the Forty-Year-Old Virgin. He, um, adding to his list of comedies, Zack and Mary make a porno, The Green Hornet, um, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. He has a small role in. Uh, he was in Kung Fu Panda Three again, reprising his role there. And then he was in Funny People, which was kind of another sort of break away from the norm, from what you're expecting. You know, it's it's a, a more dramatic take on this character that we've come to familiarize ourselves with uh, through Seth Rogen. And again, I think he succeeds very well at that. And, you know, I think if he embraced that side of himself, you know, every time he's done so, I think it has worked out fairly well. Uh, he he spoke as himself in the documentary With Great Power, the Stan Lee story. Um, he was in Step Brothers, Yumi and Dupree, uh, and The Night Before, three more comedies that I think are just okay. Uh, he reprised his role from Monsters vs. Aliens in the short film Mutant Pumpkins from Outer Space, as well as... Bob's Big Break and Night of the Living Carrots. He reprised his role in Kung Fu Panda in the short film Kung Fu Panda Secrets of the Masters. And, and all these are sort of varying degrees of bad. 
Uh, he was also reprised that voice role in Kung Fu Panda Holiday. He voiced a character in Shrek the Third, which I think is bad. Um, he went. Uh, he tried to do a sort of dramedy with um, Barbara Streisand. Uh, guilt. The Guilt Trip is the film, and I, I don't. Why is it not the first result? I think it was Barbara Streisand. Yeah, uh, which uh, didn't work out so well. Uh, I think that's more because he and Barbara Streisand do not fit together, in my opinion, than anything other than anything else. But I, I think that had less to do with him being his normal character. Uh, he was in a short film called Cops Come, Dicks, and Flying. That is kind of insane. I'm pretty sure it's either on... If you, like, Google it, you can find it. It's short film. And it's maybe not good, but at least interesting. He came back for the sequel, uh, Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising, last year, which I think is bad. Uh, it just kind of goes back to the same well and doesn't really introduce anything new. He was in the James Franco film The Interview, which was much publicized, but ultimately not something I felt much for. And the last film, uh, another short film, uh, the short film that inspired This is the End, and that's Jay and Seth versus The Apocalypse, which is a short film that just kind of takes place in... I think Jay's apartment, Jay Barshell's apartment, and is in no way representative of the ultimate film that we ended up with of This is the End, and it's far, far, far worse. Yeah, so Seth Rogen has been in a ton of films, and I've seen a lot of them, <laughs> uh, and he's rated very highly. You know, again, I don't think he's a great actor. He's shown a lot of promise, particularly in films like Take This Waltz and um, uh, Steve Jobs. But I am in no position at this moment to say that he is a great actor. Which is part of why I think... But, but this is kind of where the spreadsheet sort of it reveals things, you know? So, like, if I don't think he's such a good actor, why is he so highly rated? One, I mean, this spreadsheet isn't necessarily telling you who the best actor is. It is more accurately representative of who has the best filmography. And he has a very good filmography. Um, I do think that if Seth Rogen continues to keep making all these stoner comedies and things like that, I find it very difficult to believe that he will be able to continue to mine gold from that persona from that uh from that genre as he has done already so many times i also think that there are a few films toward the top end of his list um particularly probably neighbors and uh let me see uh neighbors and pineapple express and Knocked Up, and at least I think those are the ones that I think are the weakest, that have the biggest chance of dropping if I rewatch them. Um, not that that might ever happen, but uh, there's, there is that to consider. And 
you know, Seth Rogen used to be much higher on the list. He's actually dropped significantly. I think he was number two uh, on on the April list, uh, not terribly long ago. So he has fallen, and it remains to be seen if he will uh, catch himself before he plummets too far. Moving on to number four, a, another very prolific actor in this day. Uh, who has become known for a singular type of role. With 26 films under his belt that I've seen, currently ranked 37th overall, born April 4th, 1965, that is Robert Downey Jr., uh, best known as now as being Iron Man in every film that's ever come out. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., I've seen 26 of his films, with an average film rating of a 68.85, uh, he's been nominated once that I've seen, and he's been nominated at least another time for Chaplin, which I have not yet seen. He's the third highest value of this list at 43, and he's a total score of 112.85, so two and a half points higher than Seth Rogen. So we're, we're getting up there. This is We're really getting up there. Um, oddly... Uh, so I'm going to kind of lump, I'm just going to get all the Iron Man films out of the way now. So he's been in Iron Man 1, 2, and 3. He's been in all the Avengers movies. He's been Captain America Civil War. He is perfect as Iron Man. They could not have cast anyone better. I hope they never recast Iron Man. If Robert Downey Jr. opts out, don't bring the character back. If, uh, you know, I, I'm perfectly fine with it. He has perfect chemistry with every single other actor in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it is no stretch to suggest that the success of the MCU has largely hinged on his face and his character and his performance from the very beginning. But enough about Iron Man, because Iron Man is not the best film that Robert Downey Jr. has been in, uh, and in fact it goes to a film that he has a tiny, tiny, tiny role in, and that is Bowfinger, in my opinion. Bowfinger. Uh, Bowfinger is a comedy, Steve Martin comedy, with Eddie Murphy, where Robert Downey Jr. plays like a movie executive type of person. He has like two scenes, maybe a third uh, in the film total. So, you know, he's largely insignificant, and his charisma and presence don't really affect the movie whatsoever. But I do think it is the best film he's been in. And he's been in a lot of good movies. Uh, you know, like, he's been in 26 movies total, and 19 of them uh, I have rated above, uh, at 60 or above, uh, or more accurately, at 63 or above. And he's only been in uh, one awful film currently. So, you know, yeah, you know, five, six of those movies are Marvel films, but that's still far from like an overwhelming majority that just feels like how many it, it just doesn't it feels like a lot more than it really is so yeah iron man's number two <clears throat> after that i put in uh, i put zodiac i think zodiac is a fantastic crime thriller sort of um uh, whodunit catch em mystery movie uh jake gyllenhaal uh, is great. I think Jake Gyllenhaal is the star for me in that movie, but you know Robert Downey Jr. is quite good in it as well. 
Uh, number four, I have Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is all Robert Downey Jr. I loved this. I think I watched it for the first time after having seen him in Iron Man. And I so I saw him in Iron Man and I was like, and like this was before I was like super into movies. I didn't really recognize him. I hadn't really seen him in anything else. And then I was like, Kiss Kiss. And then I watched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is really good. He's so good in it, guys. Like, he's just really good. Really good. Uh, and then his fifth film, and the last film of his that I've rated in the top five, is Good Night and Good Luck, which is another film where he doesn't really have a super big role and they don't really ask him a lot, or ask a lot of him. But it's just another really great movie that he is a part of and he is more than competent in what they're asking of him you know he 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 fills in uh, alongside Strathairn and uh, Clooney uh, it's been a while and you know he he holds his own with some some names that are bigger than his at the time anyway he his name is pretty damn big now but uh, moving on to number six, the highest rated film of his that I put in the 80s, and the one film he that I have seen uh, where he was nominated for an Oscar is Tropic Thunder. This, I, I, I really need to rewatch this. I love this movie. Robert Downey Jr. is so fantastic in it as a guy, as like the most method of method actors to ever exist. Uh, to going so far as to have like pigment surgery done on his skin to become black and f- whatever else he, he references to having have had him had done to himself and, you know he this is this is like this is the exact kind of character robert downey jr kind of was always always has needed to play and i'm so happy that he was recognized for it with an oscar nomination because he is incredible in that role and truly makes the movie what it is. Uh, then there's the Avengers at number seven. Uh, number eight is Back to School, which is another film where he's kind of not the main focus. Uh, this is a 95 film. Oh, no, wait. No, it's not. This is an 86 film. Uh, a wealthy man returns to college to go to class with his son. I don't think that Robert Downey Jr. is the son. I think he's just kind of like a side character in this, honestly. Uh, then there's A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints, which is kind of a small film uh, that at the time really like stuck with me. It really um, impacted me in a pretty significant way. And while it hasn't exactly... Uh, lingered so much for me you know i can't really tell you a lot about it about it offhand i i do what i do recall is the level of it's a very dramatic movie it's it's far more emotionally hefty than a lot of these action comedy roles that uh robert Downey jr is so familiar with and so recognizable in then at number 10 avengers age of ultron Number 11, Captain America Civil War. We're into the 70-rated films now. Number 12 is Shortcuts, uh, which is a pretty big ensemble film, I believe. And he is 
just a, a kind of a cog in that you know this you know not all of these highly rated films are are from Downey Jr.'s uh, peak as it were but um, he's always managed to kind of stay afloat even when he kind of fell off the grid for a while there uh, Chef which is mostly a Favreau film but Robert Downey Jr. kind of tags along plays this significant side character in it that that is fairly standard um iron man 3 and the last film rated in the 70s is actually mostly a voice role uh, a scanner darkly the link later film that's rotoscoped i think that's how or, or it's it's like cell shaded or something i don't know the appropriate term I like that film. I think it's really interesting, and I, I am really intrigued by how this, the format of it, is is used to kind of give this these real world exploits a little bit more of a fantastical feel to them. You know, like if I remember correctly, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is very um, is more kind of a conspiracy theorist, and just being in this really strange and odd world helps him helps his character to feel a little more natural uh, for what he's doing moving on number 16 uh into the 60 rated films is sherlock holmes uh you know he you know he plays like a fighting sherlock which is okay uh, he's fine as sherlock holmes i, I think these movies are, are you know okay to good at best and uh that's about it iron man 2 uh weird science uh he had a small role in weird science uh the soloist uh was kind of i feel like that was a very forgotten film and i don't think it's great i wouldn't recommend it to anybody it was just something that i think uh held up oak held up well i think i saw it roughly when it came out early aughts so it's been quite some time, but I don't know. It's kind of a heartwarming story, and and all, all the actors are very capable in it. Then we move into the average-rated films. Uh, the Consultant is fine. Nothing particularly fine, fun about it. Uh, Due Date. Due Date, I think, is a bad movie that I very much liked simply for the fact that it had Robert Downey Jr. in it. I think he elevates it. Um, and and makes it a lot more than what it should have been. Uh, then into the bad films, uh, Sherlock Holmes: A Game of Shadows is kind of just more of the same of the first one, and just uh, just worse in, in in all regards, and and more played out. Uh, the Judge, for which Robert Duvall was nominated for Best Supporting Actor the other year, is not good. I didn't I didn't particularly enjoy the movie. But the acting in it is is quite solid, which is why it's a significantly higher rating than it might have otherwise been. Uh, Fur, an imaginary portrait of Diane Arbus, is very strange and weird. Uh, I have a pretty lengthy review for it on on Letterboxd, uh, and uh, it was one of the first films I watched for scavenger hunts when I started to get into those, and I just, uh, man, it. I, I don't think the film accomplishes what it set out, sets out to do. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Gothica is bad. 
and The Shaggy Dog is horrendous. So those are the last two films of his. At 26 films, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is one of the 91 people to have been in 26 films that I've seen. Uh, to rewind back to Seth Rogen, who's been in 38, uh, he's one of the 15 people to have been in 38 films that I've seen. So Robert Downey Jr., 112.85, 26 films, fourth overall for the April-born actors, and 37th overall all-time. Uh, and the MCU films that he's, he appears in just continue to bolster his numbers. And he's not really doing anything. He's not doing a lot of bad stuff outside of them right now. So I'm, I'm interested to see what he does when he steps out of the Iron Man suit. If he steps out of the Iron Man suit. I, I'm not like, what, like, can he really go back to being anything but Iron Man at this point? I, I, I don't know. I, I really, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, all right. So number three. And this is someone who I watched a couple of films uh, for regarding their Oscar-nominated performances. And um, I forget exactly uh, where he landed prior to those movies. But they rocketed him up to number three. And at 27th overall with an average film rating of 71.84. Of someone I've seen in nine Oscar-nominated performances and three uh, Oscar wins is Jack Nicholson. Um, I've seen 19 films of his. And uh, so the, the, the films that I watched in preparation for this are, let me see here. are The Last Detail, which he was nominated for, and As Good As It Gets, which he won uh, for. Uh, So, you know, those are two films that I quite enjoyed. Uh, You know, I I liked The Last Detail a little bit more, but both good movies, and uh, he's pretty great in them. He, um, so, interestingly, so... You know, a lot of people, you know, Jack Nicholson, for me, young Jack Nicholson, I think, is fantastic. I love a young Jack Nicholson. I think he hit a point, and I don't know if if this was uh, when he played the Joker or, or sometime in that vicinity, but he started to just kind of have this permanent expression on his face for me. And maybe this is because my most familiar film of his is Anger Management, uh, which I watched many times as a kid, but he he just always has that sort of grin with like the pointed eyebrows, like that laugh, and and he just, I don't know, I just, I see that in all of these newer roles that he's been in, you know, with, with The Departed is probably the biggest exception to that, and so that's why you know, you look at my spread or look at my list of films that he's seen, he's been in, and uh, you know the ones at the top, the films of his at the top of the list. So he's only got two films in the '90s: uh, Chinatown and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, both nominated performances, and he won for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Are older films, you know, they're ones from you know his sort of heyday when he was a far bigger name than he is now. 
uh, you know, I love One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's it's an incredible film. It's in my top 100. He is superb in it, and uh, probably the best thing about it, um, you know. And uh, and then Chinatown. It's been a little longer since I've seen Chinatown. Uh, but that was a one, that was a film that I'd heard a lot of great things about, and I went in very uh, apprehensively because I, I thought the the topic was like very mundane and boring. But it turned out to be a, a really interesting and compelling film, and you know it it became one of my favorites. You know, it's in my top two hundred or so. I'm not sure exactly where it is, but um, another sort of film that just is carried by Jack Nicholson's performance and he he does so with great aplomb. Uh he only has two films in the 80s. So, you know, his two films in the 90s are tied for the lowest with Saoirse Ronan and only William Holden has less films in the 80s than Nicholson at with one, Nicholson has two. His two films ranked rated in the 80s are Broadcast News uh which is not news, not network, broadcast. Broadcast News is an 87 film that I watched uh, about a year ago and uh, is labeled, uh, described as two aspiring news anchors compete for the affections of a female producer. And uh, I, I really like the sort of juxtaposition there because... Uh, you know, maybe not at that time, but especially more so now, it feels like the vast majority of these types of movies uh, deal with me- uh, uh, females uh, vying for the approval of a male. And it was nice and re- very refreshing to see the inverse, as well as the fact that it's just a film... Uh, you know, it's another James L. Brooks film. You know, Jack Nicholson and James L. Brooks uh, have collaborated a few, quite a few times, and this is w- the one I think that is the best written. I think it's the best sort of directed, produced uh, of all the films that James L. Brooks has done. It's it's quite uh, it's a it's a got much more depth than the average James L. Brooks film, in my opinion. And then The Departed. Uh, you know, Nicholson has a m- smaller role in this. You know, he's not carrying the film. Uh, you know, there's a lot of greater, you know, a lot of comparable younger actors in this movie that really shine through and uh, steal a lot of the spotlight. But every scene that Nicholson is in in The Departed is is just presented in such a way that it's like he's the main focus and it's everyone else around him trying to live up to what he's doing. And I think that that's incredibly appropriate for, for what that movie is, particularly because of his role in the, in the plot. Where Nicholson shines is films rated in the 70s, so really good films that just don't quite reach great. Uh, he has nine films in that category, which is three more than the next highest person in, in April. And, uh, you know, so just kind of, and so Reds, Five Easy Pieces, Easy Rider, and A Few Good Men 
are all Oscar-nominated performances. He did not win for any of those films, but he was nominated for all of them. Easy Rider is pretty iconic. Uh, a Few Good Men is equally as iconic. That's a great sort of late later role for him as well. You know, you can't handle the truth. Uh, Five Easy Pieces and Reds um, were very big, I believe, in their day, but have since kind of fallen out of favor. Reds was a huge uh, Warren Beatty film that came out um, and and did really well in in kind of all uh, all measurements. And uh, Five Easy Pieces, I don't... Let me see here. Five Easy. Five Easy Pieces from, was is a film from 1970, and my it's actually the highest rated film I've seen from 1970, which is a pretty slow year for me. But my, my synopsis is very poor. It just says a man seeks to find out who he is and where he should be. So I don't really have much more I can say about it. Then we move on to Terms of Endearment, also Oscar-nominated, but he won for that. That's another James L. Brooks film. And then The Last Detail, another nominated performance, which I watched recently, as I mentioned. And uh, he does a good job in that. I I was pretty surprised. It's a very small film. It doesn't do a lot. It doesn't expect a lot from its viewer. But it presents a very sort of, a much more complex view of uh, of its story than you would expect. It's you know J- Jack Nicholson and another one of the other actors are uh, Marines that are escorting a third Marine played by Randy Quaid uh, to for for crimes against something. I forget exactly what Randy Quaid's character is accused of, but they're escorting him from like one naval base to another or something like that. And along the way, they kind of get sidetracked and um, everything kind of gets all crazy. And uh, it's just, it's just a fun movie. And, you know, Nicholson is, is young and just has that commanding presence. You know, he, he, Nothing really gets in his way. Um, rounding out the 70s rated films are Batman, uh, Mars Attacks, and The Shining. I am pretty low on The Shining compared to a lot of other people. Uh, I think it's pretty good, but far from great and far from, uh, in my opinion, iconic. You know, I, I, I recognize that it is quite as... It is quite uh, representative of horror films and Kubrick, but I, I just, for me, it's just not a film that really spoke to me on that same level. Uh, Batman is good. I think that Nicholson is the best part about that movie, but that, mm, you know, he's a great Joker. He's not my favorite Joker, but he's a great Joker. But the rest of the film around him is is far less great, uh, and and so drags the film down, unfortunately. And Mars Attacks is insane, and you know he has a smaller role in that. That's more of a big ensemble piece than anything else. And I just think it's kooky and and incredibly fun, and I I love it for that. Another win, as far as Oscars go, for Nicholson comes in his highest-rated film in the rated in the 60s, and that's as good as it gets, which I recently watched. 
he is a this is another kind of later in in his career film it's he's very curmudgeonly and uh you know curmudgeon with a heart of gold tried and true plot you know james l brooks uh fishing for sentiment and gets it you know he 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 is able to mine this this character for a lot of emotional depth that you might not expect on the surface and it's supported by a, a great cast, a great like supporting players with um, Helen Hunt and Greg Kinnear. Greg Kinnear is someone I would never, would not have thought uh, could give a performance like this. I thought he was fantastic. Um, he gr- surprised me quite a bit, and as good as it gets. There's also something's got to give, which is another sort of romance dramedy type of movie that uh nicholson has did toward the end toward the later part of his career and then his very very tiny role in the little shop of horrors uh which is not as good as um the later version in my opinion and then he only has three films uh that are bad and none that are awful currently um so anger management which i mentioned earlier uh, a film called How Do You Know, which I believe is, uh, yeah, is, is a 2010 film that is just kind of about relationships and it doesn't really do very much with, you know, it doesn't do anything interesting. And the last is Going South, which is a, a younger performance of his. And it's it's a barely bad film. You know, I gave it a 48 and it's a Western comedy type of movie and it's very silly and i think it's just a little too silly to ever really overcompensate uh, or ever overcome rather that idea behind it um, it's kind of fun but ultimately uh not very you know you know what i'm trying to say um the word is, is right there, uh, inconsequential. I don't know if that's the word I was actually looking for, but anyway. So, so Jack Nicholson, with his nineteen films, has an average has a value of thirty two. His average film rating is seventy one point eight four. Nine Oscar nominations that I've seen. I know he has more, and three wins puts his score at one hundred and fifteen point eight four. So three points ahead of Robert Downey Jr. And at twenty seventh overall. We are very near the top of this list. Uh, you know, we've had this is the third person born in April in the top 50, and uh, we're gonna keep going. So, number two is, in my opinion, the best best uh, actor of this top 10. I think he far exceeds Nicholson, and he is able to embody a role. Maybe not as well as Downey Jr. and Iron Man, but but he he embodies a far a far wider scope of roles than 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 that. He is able to stretch outside of the limits that Seth Rogen has kind of pigeonholed himself in, and um, yeah, he this is just an actor that I think is is phenomenal, and I think it's a great shame that he has received no awards recognition as of right now. And it's possible that he might never, unless the the sort of parameters of the Academy and their acting 
performance uh, standards is changed. If that is the case, I think that there's a very, very good chance that he receives some sort of honorary lifetime Academy Award at some point because he is just a, a, a landmark performer and has revolutionized uh, film, I think, in my opinion. And that's Andy Circus. Andy Circus is the premier mocap performer of our day. And he is, you know, he plays characters. He's known for playing Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And uh, I think in one of the uh, Hobbit films, he is Caesar in the new Planet of the Apes films. He is Snoke in Star Wars, The Force Awakens, so he didn't have a lot to do in that, uh, but apparently he's going to have a much bigger role in The Last Jedi. He has also lended his voice talents to Arthur Christmas and The Adventures of Tintin, um, as well as Flushed Away. And then outside of mocapping and voice acting, he was in. he had a small role in The Prestige, he had a small role in Avengers Age of Ultron, which uh, that character is going to be in Black Panther. He had a role in Topsy Turvy, uh, a 90s film that did really well at the Academy. He was in Peter Jackson's King Kong. And yeah, so he's only been in 16 films that I've seen. But when he mocapped Gollum, it was a revelation. Uh, he embodied this character in a way that you know in a way that like Daniel Day-Lewis embodies Lincoln except you know you know Andy Serkis is doing it in like a green suit with like white balls on his body and that you know he he's doing it in an environment where he can't really see what's around him he doesn't know what he's looking what he looks like to other people he's not interacting with these other characters in the same way that uh, a Daniel Day-Lewis is, and, and not to take anything away from Daniel Day-Lewis, I'm not trying to say that Circus is a better actor, I don't think that he is, but I think that Circus is just on a level that is so much so much higher than I think most people give him credit for, and despite the fact that John Favreau's uh, Jungle Book did incredibly well, was incredibly well received, won an Oscar for visual effects, and, you know, just kind of, you know, it, it had beautiful, beautiful imagery in it. And now I think a lot of people are very much unexcited for the Andy Circus Jungle Book to come out. But if he's mocapping every single character in that movie, if he, even, if he, even if he were only mocapping one character in that movie, I would be like, I would, my money is already there. You know, I will see anything he's mocapping for the rest of his career. I he he is incredible at at that. And I, I you know, Gollum and Caesar are heads and shoulders. You know, I I would give him at least a nomination for his performance as Caesar in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, or he definitely deserved an award nomination for like supporting in one of the Lord for one of the Lord of the Rings performances he had I'm stunned that he hasn't received some they haven't done something to to honor him yet 
and I, I really hope they change that going forward. So, uh, like I said, uh, you know, he is a very top-heavy actor. Of his 16 films, there are only two that aren't good, and only one that's bad. One of them is is average. He has four films rated in the 90s. Uh, that's the Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, Lord of the Rings for Return of the King, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and The Prestige. Uh, so The Prestige, he's actually live action. You know, he plays the assistant to uh, David Bowie in the movie. And, you know, he doesn't do anything remarkably fantastic, but he just, he has a great charisma about him. You know, he, you know, he's not, you know, he's not one of these uber handsome, really good looking guys that, you know, he's kind of a smaller, diminutive person that has kind of an unusual appearance and, you know, that, and so it's, it's even more difficult for him to, to, you know, overcome that as an actor, because, you know, as viewers, we don't want our actors to look ugly or, or just not pretty. And, you know, I don't think Andy Serkis is ugly, but he's certainly not conventionally pretty. And he's able to sort of cast all of that crap aside to, you know, even take on live action roles like the in The Prestige or moving on to into his films ranking in the 80s. Uh, the Avengers Age of Ultron, he plays a sort of minor character in that, but he's supposed to have a very big role in Black Panther, and he looks great in it. Uh, you know, his his expertise at mocapping, I think, translates really well into his live-action performances. He is able to present his appearance, his body, his his physicality in a way that most actors just can't, uh, you know, even when he's not aided by the green suit, he knows exactly what he's doing and what he looks like doing it. You know, he's done this time and time and time again. And it's, it's just really, I think anytime he's on the screen, mocap or not, he is just fascinating to watch move. You know, he, he, he uses the space perfectly he moves, you know, he, he feels like he's in constant control of every single muscle in his body to, to great effect. The other films ranked in, rated in the 80s for, for Circus are Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, um, Episode 7, The Force Awakens, uh, which I've touched on. You know, I think Snoke is an interesting challenge for Circus. You know, Snoke is the biggest physically character that he's played that I'm aware of, and it's going to be interesting to see him given a bigger role in episode eight. Uh, likewise, there's also the Adventures of Tintin and Arthur Christmas. Uh, Arthur Christmas is kind of a it's kind of a surprise for me. I didn't expect it to be as good as it was, and I don't think Circus has a very big role in it. But you know, just as you know, he is as good a voice actor as as anybody. Um, which is, you know, just another dimension to his, um, to his uh, incredible uh, abilities. And then The Adventures of Tintin I'm, is a Spielberg film, an animated Spielberg film that came out in 2011. 
and it's it's very much uh, it's an interesting movie, and uh, Circus plays the the captain. Uh, so Tintin is voiced by Jamie Bell, and Annie Circus voices uh, Captain Haddock, who accompanies the Tintin character. Um, I'm trying to find out. It was, yeah. So like this movie was is very much, is animated, but it's you know they used mocap for it, and who better than Andy Serkis to mocap for anything? So again, like another just great performance of his, and you can see it in the way that the characters move on the screen. That he's, I I, th- I think it is very easy to tell the difference between you know as good as Cumberbatch was as Smaug. I think that Circus, you know, comparing his performance as Smaug to, like, Circus as Gollum is almost night and day. And I don't think there's anyone that's going to be able to touch Circus for a long time. Moving on to the 70-rated films, uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, so, you know, Caesar's first outing, a smaller role than it was in Dawn, which is why I think it was um, less uh, less as... Uh, revolutionary. Uh, the Hobbit, Unexpected Journey, where he reprised his role as Gollum and was great again. Uh, Topsy Turvy, which I mentioned, is. I don't know. It, it, I don't think it warranted all the awards buzz it got at the time, but it's, an, it's a good, a very good film for what it is. Uh, King Kong is interesting because. He's himself in King Kong. You know, Peter Jackson worked with King Kong. And, uh, you know, he... Well, I mean, that's not that's not entirely true. So, so Andy Serkis plays Lumpy, who is an actual live-action character in that movie. But he also does mocap Kong. Like, he is King Kong in this movie. And, like, he just... There's kind of just no... There's really nothing he can't do. Like, he can play Gollum, who is a hunched over, um, out of his mind, you know, hobbit, with tattered rags and, you know, sharp teeth and all that kind of stuff. He can then play, like, a boat captain in The Adventures of Tintin. He can then play a talking ape in planet of the apes he can play king kong in king kong like these are all very very different characters and his who i believe to be the sort of successor to any circus uh toby kebbell plays the i i mentioned this in the the king kong in the kong skull island episode uh toby kebbell i don't know exactly what extent his he was part of bringing Kong to life in that film. I know he's credited as it, but there's other people credited. I don't know if he was just mocapping or if he was just the voice or two people mocapped it or what what the situation was. But it's interesting because Andy Serkis played King Kong in 2005 and then 12 years later, Toby Cabell, who has worked with Andy Serkis on the Planet of the Apes films, uh, has now stepped into that role and played Kong in Kong Skull Island. Andy Serkis is far and away a better Kong, I, I, you know, but but he has 
you know, I think Toby Kebbell has the potential to really rise to the same level if he continues on. You know, I think Toby Kebbell's a little bit more live action focused than Andy Serkis has ever been. Uh, but there's definitely definitely room there for Toby Kebbell to kind of fill in the shoes of Andy Serkis because Andy Serkis can't do everything. And, you know, he, he's going to need... There has to be other people to do it, too. Uh, he's only in one film rated in the 60s, and that's Flushed Away, which is an animated movie. I don't know that if there's any mocap, uh, but it's just about mice who get flushed down a toilet, and it's fine. It's good. He's in 13 going on 30. I don't remember him being in that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it. And he's in Burke and Hare, his only bad film, which also stars Simon peg and i think they're like these two guys it's like a it's a period piece from like a long time like medieval times or something like that and they like harvest body parts i think Uh, i'm not sure but it it was a strange strange movie and and, but very fitting for for who andy circus is so andy circus he's 24th overall so he's in the top 25 with his 16 films uh he has an average film rating of 77.06 so fairly high uh actually fifth highest of the top 10 or or rather fourth highest of the top 10 and because he has so few bad films uh despite the fact that he has no oscar nominations he has a 39 value which gives him an 116.06 so just two tenths of a point ahead of jack nicholson very small margin um not to mention that there are two people uh, as well between Circus and Nicholson in the rankings. So that's number two, Andy Circus, born April 20th, 1964. Oh, and uh, Jack Nicholson, I don't think I mentioned his birth. Uh, April 22nd, 1937. The oldest living actor on this top 10. So moving on to number one. Um, number one is probably closest related in terms of acting talents and acting ability to Andy Serkis because this is not a person that is generally in live action roles. This is a primarily a voice actor. Um, he is currently ranked 10th overall, born April 6th, 1947. I've seen 26 of his films, and that's John Ratzenberger. Uh, John Ratzenberger has a storied history uh, voice acting with um, Pixar, uh, he plays uh, a ton. He's in a ton of films of theirs. I'm gonna bring up his page here so I can remember what roles he plays because he's never really in the biggest roles, right? He's a very he's a very supporting actor. He uh, is probably best known as a live action actor in Cheers, but uh, he has found a great home in Pixar, and so. Just kind of looking through, he he voices Ham in the Toy Story films. Uh, he voices P.T. Flea in A Bug's Life. He, um, let me see here. Uh, he is the voice of um, the assistant manager at the uh, bathhouse in the English version of Spirited Away. He voices the Yeti in Monsters, Inc. Um, 
The school of fish that uh, give directions in Finding Nemo, are his, that's also him. He's the underminer in The Incredibles at the end of that film. Uh, he's a couple of different role voices in Cars. Uh, Mac, the ham truck, the abominable slope, snowplow. Uh, he is Mustafa in Ratatouille. He is John in Wally. He is the construction foreman Tom in Up. Uh, he is, uh, let's see, reprising, reprising. He's Gordon in Brave. He is the Yeti in A Monster's University. He is Harland in Planes, which is not a good movie. Uh, moving on recently, he was in Planes, Fire and Rescue. Uh, da, 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 da. He was Fritz in Inside Out, Earl in The Good Dinosaur, Husband Crab in Finding Dory, or, or Bill in parentheses. Uh, so he, he's been in a ton of things, right? He, he's voice acted in all of your favorite movies. Toy so, you know, I'm just going to run down the list top to bottom. Here we go. Uh, these are just his voice acting roles. We'll come back and do his live action performances, which there are one or two. Uh, so Toy Story, the only film rated 100 that any of these people have been in. Uh, then Inside Out, Toy Story 3, The Incredibles, then Finding Nemo, then Toy Story 2, then Spirited Away, then Wally, then Up. Uh, then we jump into the 80s with A Bug's Life, Ratatouille, Monsters, Inc., into the 70s with Finding Dory, Monsters University, uh, Party Zorris Rex, a, a short film based on Toy Story, Cars, into the 60s with Hawaiian Vacation, another Toy Story short film, The Good Dinosaur, then into the bad films uh, with Small Fry, another Toy Story short film, Cars 2, into the awful with Planes and Planes Fire and Rescue. Uh, so then, so, you know, tons of voice roles. Pretty much every Pixar film that has come out has John Ratzenberger in it. And with good reason, you know, he is a malleable voice that is able to uh, you know, just take on a character and, and breathe life into a side character that otherwise would kind of feel wooden. And he's able to uh, rise above that almost completely. Um, but uh, he does have a few notable live action roles. Um, uh, so one of his best films, his well, his 10th best film overall, but a film of his rated in the 90s, he has nine of them, uh, which is part of the reason why he's number one out of April, is Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. He plays the role of Rebel Force Major Durlin, um, which, you know, to be honest, I don't have any idea. I, I, I couldn't pick that character out of a lineup, but he is that person, uh, and... He's in that movie as himself, you know, not as a voice. Into the 70-rated film, he's in Gandhi, uh, which he plays an American lieutenant. Uh, Gandhi, which won Best Picture that year. And then uh, he's in Outland with Sean Connery, which is, I think, a bad film. I've heard some people uh, praise it, but I think it's kind of silly. 
uh, and then he plays Rusty. No, he doesn't. He plays Dusty. Yeah, Dusty in That Darn Cat. Uh, I believe, it's been a long time since I've seen That Darn Cat. I think he's like a neighbor to like, I want to say that they live in an apartment complex and he lives in like one of the apartments near to the characters that are actually involved in the story. But I'm not sure. He could also be like, I don't know, the animal control person. I, I really can't remember. Regardless, uh, he has a couple of live action roles. And there's plenty more that I just haven't seen. Um, you know, if I if I go to his letterboxed page, John Ratson. That's probably not going to do it, is it? Oh, it is. Okay. So he's got 65 film credits. Uh, and once you get through all the big animated ones, uh, there's Superman 2, um, The Falcon and the Snowman, Ragtime, um, Hanover Street has uh, Harrison Ford in it. Um, okay, so most of these are, are very small films that most people won't know. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I mean, he's not just a voice actor, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And, yeah, so, upcoming, he's going to be in Toy Story 4, you know, in, as Ham. And uh, that's all we've got going forward, I believe. Let's look here. Yeah. Yep, it's the only one, really, that makes any sense worth to mention. So, John Ratzenberger, number one, he's got 26 films, he's 10th highest overall, born April 6, 1947, with an average film rating of 70.96. One film rated 100, nine films in the 90s, three films in the 80s, five films in the 70s, two films in the 60s, three films between 25 and 49, and three films between 0 and 24. He's never been nominated for an Oscar. Uh, honestly, I don't think any of the roles he's going to be in, in any of, at least any of his voice roles, are ever going to be big enough, even to warrant a supporting character actor nomination, given if if those parameters were adjusted. So, you know, I don't know that this will ever happen. Again, I could totally see him being receiving some sort of lifetime honorary award, a la Andy Serkis. Uh, his value is a 53, by far the highest out of these 10 people, simply because he is so top-heavy. One film in the at rate 109 films rated in the 90s, that is a very large amount of films. And, you know, when you look at someone like William Holden, who only has six films total, you can see why there's so much of a difference between uh, their scores. That gives him a total score of 123.96, and that's only good enough for 10th place. So, you know, I've, between Planes, Planes, Fire, and Rescue, and, uh, you know, watching those really dropped his score. John Ratzenberger used to be in the top five and felt was pretty solid at that point. But uh, the Planes movies really hurt him quite a bit, which dropped him down to 10th. He's just nine-tenths of a point behind number nine, which is Tom Hanks. So, you know, very good company there. 
uh, his score, or his value of a 53 is tied for 11th highest with Jonah Hill. Uh, he is the one of the three people in the top 10 all time without a single Academy Award nomination. Um, one of those people will be in next month's top 10 list for Mayborn actors. May is an incredibly highly dense uh, month. Three of the top 10 people on my spreadsheet are born in May, which is kind of ridiculous. And five, six total people in the top 16 are born in May. Uh, You know, it's just May. Like I said, May and December are the most, uh, uh, the highest average rating, highest average score of uh, actors for them. And that's going to do it. So those are, again, the top 10 actors for April. I will run down that list one last time. From 10 to 1, we have Saoirse Ronan, Alec Guinness, Al Pacino, Emma Thompson, William Holden, Seth Rogen, Robert Downey Jr., Jack Nicholson, Andy Serkis, and John Ratzenberger. If you think any of these names are far too high and you want to recommend any some bad movies they've been in, please feel free. I'm completely open to them. If you know of other actors uh, who were born in April, and uh, here are some of them that didn't make the cut, you have Clark Gregg uh, from the MCU, Michael Fassbender just misses, he's in 14th, Emma Watson in 16th, uh, Hugo Weaving it's pretty it's a little farther down. Marlon Brando, Claire Danes, Daniel Day Lewis, um, David Cross, Adrian Brody, Paul Rudd, James McAvoy, Haley Atwell, Kirsten Dunst, Sally Hawkins, uh, David Tennant, Max von Sydow, Giancarlo Esposito, Alec Baldwin, Toshiro Mifune. Uh, these are you know just a lot. Of, there's just a ton of people in. I mean, every month, really. But uh, these are just some of the people who are fairly highly ranked, but just not enough. You know, whether it's simply the case that they have a couple of bad films dragging them down, um, which is particularly frequent when you're dealing with someone who uh, is already dead or um, very old, you know, generally speaking, someone like a Marlon Brando. While I'm sure he has a ton of great films in his in his list, uh, some of his more recent films uh, just aren't as good, and they are the ones that I've seen more. more I'm more likely to have seen uh, because they came out more recently, um, or maybe it's just simply uh, a lack of quantity. Uh, when you look at someone like Claire Danes, she only has nine films to her credit. You know, she is largely involved with Homeland right now. And that's just another, you know, it's not like she has many bad films. She just doesn't have a lot of films total. And they're not, you know, the highest rated. They're very good, not great for the most part. So, like I said, anybody that's outside of that top 10 that you know is born in April, that you want to boost up, try and get them into the top 10, feel free to recommend me good movies of theirs. Um, Looking forward to May, uh, the current... Uh, May lineup 
is the most female friendly of any of the lineups currently uh, with five of the top 10 being females at this moment. And, uh, you know, like I said, seven of the top 10 are in the top 25. Like this is a very dense month. If you have, if, if one of your favorite actors is born in May and you want to give them a fighting chance, please feel free to, uh, recommend those films. You know, I have, I'm going to have plenty of time in, in April to watch movies, uh, for these people so don't hesitate um just looking at the list right now there are a couple of people toward the top with a very very small number of films that i've seen notably henry fonda tom berenger and Lawrence olivier and there's definitely so there's definitely a lot of opportunity to uh, shake up some of these rankings here so that's going to do it for today's episode. This is, I think, the longest episode yet at two hours and like 15 minutes once I add in the intro, outro stuff. Thank you so much for listening through all of this. Uh, and uh, please feel free to send any of your comments, concerns, questions, or answers to circleoffilm at gmail.com. If you have any interest in previous episodes, me, the spreadsheet, the scavenger hunts, the Circle of Film Awards, head over to circleoffilm.com. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same tonight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from view.